So this morning, we want to take a look at a couple of different things. This past week, uh, this past couple of weeks, really is, uh, there's a number of remembrances having to do with, interestingly enough, this period of time, events in the Jewish world that uh, are, uh, we could say, after the, uh, the resurrection of the Messiah, but before his glorious return. And it's very interesting because most people, I mean, we are like, you know, it's like preaching to the choir here, you know. But for most people, most uh, people that trust in the Lord, Jewish history basically ends in, in, in the New Covenant. It's like you have the, the Jewish people, Old Testament history, and then the Messiah comes, and that's it. Like, it, like it's over or something. But we know that that is indeed not the case, that uh, Jewish history uh, uh, continued on parallel to what we call church history, okay? The history of the organization of the, of the church, right? The formation of the, of the Roman Catholic Church, and then you have the Eastern uh, branch of it, and then you have the uh, Protestant Reformation. That's what's called that, 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 that history. But Jewish history uh, certainly uh, continued, and it is not a, really a pretty history. Actually, uh, it is a history of exile. The whole thing is a history of exile. Because we know that, um, you know, in 70 AD and then the, and then I would say in about 135 AD, that was like the, the total end where uh, Jewish people uh, were in exile. Certainly, the temple was destroyed in 70. Uh, you had an exile, certainly, in, in 70. But it wasn't until uh, a little while later, close to 70 years later, that the exile was, like, complete, you know? And uh, in the 100s, in the 200s, and 300s, and 500s, and 1,000, and 1,500, and 1,700, 1,800, 1,900, uh, the Jewish people have been in exile. And I would also say 2,000. <laughs> the Jewish people are still in exile. And so the history, therefore, the history of Jewish people in exile is never that great, right? It's kind of interesting. Uh, during the, if you know your scriptures, you know that when uh, Jeremiah was preaching away and uh, he said to the people, he says, You're going into exile. In fact, by even saying that, they thought that he was a collaborator with Nebuchadnezzar, by, uh, that he was like unpatriotic basically, that he was going against the popular thinking. And he said, you're going into exile. And what did he say? He actually said, uh, go and live there, make a life for yourself, you know, be a blessing to the city where you live in exile, you know, and, and all of that. And so later on in history, when you had the, this uh, long 2,000-year uh, exile, that's kind of like what the Jewish people have tried to do, what our people have tried to do over many, many years. Actually, um, interestingly enough, we call that short period of time, that 70-year captivity, in between the first and second temple period, like right in the Bible there, we call that the Babylonian captivity. But you know, after the, uh, when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem, there was like another Babylonian captivity. Because the majority of Jewish people were actually living in Babylon during Yeshua's day, and then certainly after that. And that is why, 
you have like the Babylonian Talmud. Why is the Talmud called the Babylon? I know that there's a, uh, a Jerusalem Talmud, but it, had, it is like the distant cousin of the main authoritative in the Jewish world, authoritative Talmud, which is the Babylonian Talmud. And when you read uh, Jewish history, you read where were the seminaries located, where were the, where were the yeshivas located? All along the Euphrates River in, uh, in Babylon, okay? Uh, and then uh, there's an interesting history uh, there, and a lot of Jews began going, migrating to southern Europe, uh, and then to northern Europe, and, and you know the rest of that story. It's uh, basically Jewish people uh, migrating to different places in Europe and the Middle East, and then eventually to South America, North America, and, uh, you know, and, and here we are. So there's uh, a, a number of you know, uh, plagues and events and bad things that took place. And we even end up with a holiday called Tisha B'Av, right? Which is the ninth of the month of the Hebrew month of Av, which occurs in August, which commemorates all the bad things in Jewish history. Most of which happened, again, in this long 2,000-year exile. However, it is simply amazing. It should be amazing to us that perhaps not in our lifetime, but in the lifetime of our parents, or maybe grandparents, depending on what age we are, or maybe in your lifetime, was the worst event of all time, right? And which is the Holocaust. Think about that. that is the worst persecution of Jewish people in 5,000 years. I mean, the entire history of the Jewish people took place in the middle of the 20th century. I mean, that is, that is hard to get your arms around. You know, it really is. And you know, when people... Uh, try to uh, give, uh, well, you know, this is why it happened. Or, or when people ask, why the, how could something like that happen? Uh, you know, we always, as believers, we sometimes feel like we have to have like an answer, you know? And I would, of course, suggest that the answer is, I don't know. You know, there's, there's certain things we could say, but uh, when it comes to specifics, how dare we think we, uh, you know, have all the answers? Uh, to something as horrific, uh, you know, as that, right? But it is interesting uh, to think about that it happened so close to us, right? So that, that has taken place. And, and last week uh, was Yom HaShoah, right? And a number of us attended the different uh, commemorations, observances in our, in our city. Then amazingly, amazingly, this week, you have... Uh, first, you have uh, uh, Israel's version of Memorial Day, right? Uh, Yom Hazikaron, which is a solemn day in Israel. It's not, you know, picnics and stuff like that. It is, it's really a solemn day because in Israel, you have uh, what uh, someone might refer to as, a, as really a citizen army, you know, where uh, everybody uh, knows somebody uh, who has been affected uh, by, uh, by wars in, in Israel. Just about everybody knows someone who, who has been killed uh, or, or, or you know, injured or something like that, or definitely served. Uh, uh, and then the very next day is Yom Ha'atzma'ut, which is Israel's Independence Day. Okay? And Israel's Independence Day is very interesting because it's not exactly like the way we do Fourth of July. It's kind of is, you know, big celebrations, fireworks, stuff like that. But for us, it's more, in the United States, we think of Independence Day, it's more like this historical, we're remembering a, the historical event, 
you know, that took place hundreds of years ago before any of us or our parents or our grandparents lived in this land, right? Uh, Just about. So it's a historical event, and we rejoice in it, and we appreciate the, you know, the history of it. But when it comes to Israel's Independence Day, it's more like a very contemporary victory of survival and existence. Like, you know, we're rejoicing that, that we exist, uh, not just remembering, wow, the, you know, the forefathers of the nation and the War of Independence, but it, it comes right up to the present day. Uh, so it's a different kind of uh, celebration, really, because, you know, the entire history of uh, the nation of Israel is somewhat tenuous from uh, May 14, 1948 to the 21st of April in 2018. Uh, and, uh, and so it always requires, you know, prayer and concern and so when we come to Israel's Independence Day, it is this great, uh, it is a great celebration of victory, of, of survival, of existence today. You know, it's very contemporary in that. And so it is very interesting that all of this has taken place, though, after the resurrection of the Messiah. The, the 2,000 years of dispersion, uh, the, uh, you know, all of the, the litany of persecutions, the, the Holocaust, the coming to Israel, and, and uh, the, you know, Israel's independence and, and existence today, all is a, a coming after the resurrection. And so, you know, it does ask, it does kind of beg a, a, a question for us of, so how, how do you, uh, how does that resonate? How, how do you deal with that? That if uh, Yeshua is the good news for Israel, uh, and, uh, you know, and all of this has, has happened, the good, the bad, and the ugly, how does it, does it is there some connection, you know, is, the, is there a connection uh, in, uh, in all of it? Or is Jewish history totally, like, separate from uh, the history of the coming of the Messiah, you know? Well, of course, we, uh, we, we clearly would say that the answer is that, of course, it's related, you know, uh, if those who would say it's not related would be those who might say that Israel is no longer uh, the chosen people, no longer a covenant people. But, but if Israel is still the covenant people, then it must be related because uh, the, the coming of the Messiah is part of Jewish history, right? Uh, that uh, you have the history of Israel in the Bible of God interacting with the people. And then we see the, the coming of the Messiah in the Brit Chadashah. But God is still the same, right? But the Messiah has come. So how has that affected uh, Israel? How has that affected the Jewish uh, people? Clearly, the coming of the Messiah has affected the Jewish people. Uh, because Yeshua himself prophesied that the day was going to come soon when the temple was going to be destroyed. He prophesied that in, in Matthew chapter 24 right? That the temple was going to be destroyed. And it wasn't that many days, uh, that many decades after uh, he said that. In a passage like Matthew chapter 23, in Matthew chapter 23, at the end of the chapter, as we have all the woes, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees. At the very end of it, Yeshua says this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, 
but you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on, you shall not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So Yeshua is weeping. He's lamenting. You know, It kind of reminds me of the passion of God that we read about like in Hosea chapter 11. Oh, Ephraim, Ephraim, how can I give you up, Ephraim? You know, it's like you read there, like God is in this conundrum, right? He loves the people, yet in their disobedience, he realizes and knows that to be true to himself and ultimately for the redemption of the people, chastisement must come. And so that is exactly what, uh, what Yeshua says. Now, when you go to Romans chapter 11, Romans 11, Paul makes this statement. He is dealing very specifically in, in Romans 11 with the issue of what about the fact he's writing to the Roman believers, Gentile believers. He says, I'm writing to you who are Gentiles, right? Non-Jews. What about this fact that the, uh, by and large, Jewish people have not come to know the Messiah? What about it? What does it mean? Okay. So at the beginning of the chapter, he says this. He says, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people, which, whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed thy prophets, they have torn down thine altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So what he's doing is, Paul is saying, when, when he says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, or do you not know what it says in the prophets, right? So he's, relaying, he's relating the current situation to something that happened hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years earlier, Okay. Because God is still the same, and Israel is still the chosen people. And so you end up with the same patterns, you might say. Okay? So he says, verse 5, the most important words are the, the first five words of verse 5 are profound. In the same way then. In the same way then. In other words, the God of Israel is the God of Israel is the God of Israel. When the prophets came, like Jeremiah... What happened? It was only a very small minority. It was a remnant of the people that actually repented. But by and large, the nation did not. They went into captivity. They went into exile. Okay? And so what he is saying is, in the same way, now there is a remnant who believes see, of, of Israel. And just as God, that the Jewish people remain the chosen people in the Babylonian captivity... He remains the chosen people. They remain the chosen people now, is what he's saying. That's the good news. But then he says, What then? That which Israel was seeking for, it has not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. So he's saying it's like the same thing. 
God did not do away with the people when they went into the Babylonian captivity. In fact, he brought them back, right? And, and so now we see that uh, the Jewish people uh, are in captivity outside of the land, one might say. Now, when Paul wrote this, they were still in the land, but, but he sees, he, he understands, he understands what's coming. He understands that there's a chastisement for, uh, for unbelief. There's a chastisement on the, on the people when they don't believe the prophets. Uh, there's a chastisement on the people when they don't em- em- embrace uh, Yeshua. But what he says, but that doesn't mean it's the end of the story. That doesn't mean it's the end of the story. Okay? Uh, he says, now if their transgression be riches for the world and their failure be riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? Okay? So he's saying here that, wow, if their rejection means that the gospel, use plain English, if the gospel goes out to the nations and their rejection, how much unbelievably better will it be when they embrace Yeshua? You see? And so it's very important that we understand the big picture. Now, as to why particular persecutions and in individuals and terrible events, I don't know. Nobody knows. But what we understand is that who is it? You know, who are the Babylonians? They were the enemies of God, right? And God uh, used them, but, but then he judges them. And so in the same way, it is those who are enemies of God who have persecuted the Jewish people. Uh, during all of these, uh, all of these intervening, all of these intervening years. However, what has God done? What is the good news here? The good news is that God has certainly preserved the Jewish people. God has preserved the Jewish people to this day, and uh, without the Lord and without the coming of the Messiah, there certainly would be no Jewish people in this world. Because how can a people exist? For all of these years, without a land and without a language, without a land, without a language, how do how does a people exist for thousands of years? You know, uh, most historians would say this is uh, you know this is indeed an anomaly. But we see in our own history, in our own day, and this uh, an amazing thing has come to pass, and that is a return to basic things a return of the Jewish people to the land and a return of Jewish of a remnant of Jewish people to the Lord. See, uh, if Yeshua truly is the Messiah of Israel, then indeed anything that we can say that is attributed to what God is doing in the life of Israel is because of Yeshua. Sometimes even we ourselves uh, make some kind of, of uh, differentiation historically. That, well, there's God is the one who is preserving Israel. But Yeshua, that's something different. You know, the Messiah came and died for us. No, let me tell you, uh, Yeshua is indeed the incarnation of the God of Israel, right? So whatever we're going to say about what God has done in the history of the Jewish people is because of, of the coming of the Messiah, because of the coming of Yeshua. Now, so this week we, uh, this week we have uh, Yom Ha'atzma'ut, Israel's Independence Day. So, you know, in our uh, study, as we've been doing it in Genesis, we certainly uh, have observed the importance of the land, right? Right? Uh, like, for example, uh, 
uh, land uh, at the very beginning of the Bible. Land is really important, right? I mean, the Garden of Eden is a real place in the world where people live, right? And, and so uh, very interesting. Land is very Im- Im- important at the very beginning. And then, of course, we see that uh, sin caused the human beings to leave the land, not leave earth. Isn't that interesting? No. Leave that, that particular piece of land, all right? And in a sense, uh, go into exile, uh, we could say, to, to this day, right? Uh, and then, of course, we come to Abraham, and through, through a human being, humanity would return to God. Uh, and uh, God says basically three things to Abraham, and this is an easy way to remember it. He tells him he's going to have a posterity, right? He's going to have a descendants. Uh, he ha- he's going to have a place. There's going to be a land, a land that his descendants would dwell. And then there's a promise for the nations, right? And the promise for the nations is the blessing of God on, on all the nations. But it requires a posterity and a place, okay? The posterity are the descendants of Israel, the kings of Israel, and, you know, and, and all that. And the place is the land of Israel. And it's very interesting that, there, again, there are many, many uh, wonderful uh, people, believers in Yeshua, that are, uh, believe very much that Israel is the chosen people and believe that the Messiah is Jewish and, and believe in the Jewish uh, you know, uh, heritage of the faith and essence of the faith. But disassociate the land itself, the current events of the land itself from all of that. You know, and perhaps, uh, yes, Israel is uh, in the land, but uh, the land uh, doesn't seem to play much of a role in the, in the great promises of God. But, but uh, very interestingly, in the, I would suggest to us that in the very same way that we read in Romans 11, that, okay, when the people are, uh, you know, in disobedience, there's chastisement, right? In the same way, there's a remnant today. Well, I, just like in Elijah's day, the people were dwelling in the land, and exile meant you, you leave the land, uh, but then there's an end of exile, and you return to the land. And so, therefore, the coming of the Messiah must have something to do with the land, uh, and, and not just in the, um, when the Lord returns, but, but even, um, but even uh, today. And so it is interesting, I won't take up too much time to say this, but uh, you could read in, in a number of places in the, um, you know, in the New Covenant that uh, the promises having to do with the land are, are there. Sometimes we'll say, well, there are, there's nothing in the New Covenant about the land, but there's an assumption of the land, you know, uh, th- th- certainly that, uh, the, first of all, the Messiah did not live in Columbus, Ohio, right? Uh, he was living in Eretz Yisrael, in the land of Israel. Uh, and the events of his life take place in the land of Israel. That in and of itself is not a coincidence. A thousand years ago, I'll never forget it, I was speaking at a church somewhere, and afterwards, somebody came up to me and said, well, it was just a coincidence that he happened to be born there. You know, right, he's supposed to be an American. Right, Exactly. Right and, and look like he came from Nebraska, and or Venice Beach, 
uh, depending on which photo, which paint, not photograph. <laughs> anyway, uh, so uh, I thought to myself, wow, you know, like what Bible are you reading? Uh, you know, a coincidence? No, obviously it's all according to the plan of God. And not just to fulfill the prophecies that he was, you know, born in this place and born in the, you know, like we're, like we're clicking them all off. But no, he's the Messiah of Israel. So of course, the land is important. Now, when you read uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, in the Gospel of Matthew, in the fourth chapter, you're probably uh, familiar with this. He says, uh, he says this uh, in verse uh, 12. Now, when he heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into the Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. Now, thankfully, Matthew tells us why this is important. He says, this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, saying, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. By the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and to those who were sitting in the land and a shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. From that time, Yeshua began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Okay? So it's important that Yeshua went to the Galilee, and that he spent a lot of time in the Galilee. Because, you know, a lot of the passages which teach about a God being the shepherd and he's going to go and find the lost sheep are of the tribes of Israel that were north. And so it's important that he is not only spending time in Jerusalem, but he's in the north where the first people who were exiled went, you know, were from. And here uh, he is bringing light to them and not only to them, but to the nations. But I would suggest that the importance is not only about those couple of verses, but I think that when Yeshua says it, he is drawing attention to that whole section of Isaiah. Because when you continue to read that portion, uh, after what uh, Matthew quoted, you read in verse 6, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase or of, the, of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness. And from then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So in the very same breath that he talks about you know, the, the area of the Galilee, Galilee of the Gentiles, in the, uh, where the, tribal, um, the, the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali uh, were, where, where Yeshua now is. Not only that, but, but that when that happens, our king will, will be with us, the Messianic king. Uh, and he's going to sit on the throne of his father David. Now, clearly, the, the concept of kingdom requires a place. The concept of kingdom requires a place. When Isaiah is saying this, he clearly is thinking of the land of Israel. You know, Judah and Samaria and, and, you know, and, and, and all of that. And I would suggest that it is no coincidence that you read in this passage, after Matthew quotes the text from Isaiah, it says in verse 17, from that time Yeshua began to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Because it's part of that very same passage. 
about the child who would be the king, the messianic, uh, the messianic uh, uh, king. And so, interestingly enough, we see that uh, it seems that this kingdom is not just this invisible place, but it really is where Yeshua, you know, where, uh, where Yeshua is. Now, if you go back in your uh, text to 1 Chronicles, or you can just listen, that's okay. In 1 Chronicles chapter 17, where you have a repetition of the promise that God made to David uh, about, uh, you know, how uh, his son would build a house and his kingdom would last forever and all that. Well, it's very interesting, though. In 1 Chronicles, it says it a little differently. What it says in 1 Chronicles is, I will settle him in my house and in my kingdom forever. God's kingdom. The kingdom of David, the kingdom of Israel, is the kingdom of heaven, is the kingdom of God. It's not a separate thing. Very important. Uh, when you go to the birth of, uh, of Yeshua in the uh, Gospel of Luke, Luke uh, 1, what, is, what does the angel say to Mary or, or Miriam? He says, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, the King, and the Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. He really is the King of uh, Israel. He really is uh, the recipient or the, uh, the fulfillment of the promise made to David and to all those real kings in a real place. And Yeshua was a real person, right? And when he died and when he rose from the dead, he was still a real uh, a person and still really uh, the king of Israel. Now, it's interesting in the book of Acts, in the book of Acts, for time's sake, I'm just going to say all this. In Acts, when uh, Peter uh, heals a lame man, he gives a speech. This is his second speech. It's in Acts chapter 3. Okay, And he answers the question of what's going on. Uh, what, what, what's happening? And this is he says something very, very interesting. In verse 19, 20, and 21 of Acts chapter 3, he says, Repent therefore and return, that your sins may be wiped away, in order that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Yeshua, the Messiah, appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the time of restoration of all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient times. He's saying that Yeshua is alive, he is at the right hand of the Father, but, he's, but the, there will be this time of restoration, okay? And so this idea of land restoration is not just spiritual restoration. It's restoration of the, of the kingdom, restoration of the kingdom of Israel, because that is indeed what didn't the apostles ask that question of Yeshua in Acts chapter 1 and verse 6? So when they had come together, they were asking of him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? And he says, It is not for you to know times or epochs uh, which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. Okay? 
So, in other words, Yeshua is not saying, no, 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 there's not going to be a real, it's all done. That's not what he says at all. He says, no, it's not for you to know exactly when that's going to be. But right now, beginning in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and everywhere, preach this good news of the coming of the Messiah. Okay? I, and, uh, and so it's interesting because after the resurrection and after even Acts chapter 2, what do we read? We read that the early believers, the earliest believers, were meeting in the temple. Evidently, it still meant something to them, right? Uh, we read that uh, Paul himself is in Ephesus, but he desires to get back to Jerusalem in order to be back in time for Shavuot. So evidently, in the mind of the apostles and in the mind of Paul, the purpose of the land of Israel is still really important after the resurrection. The land is still important. To, this is before the exile, right? This is all before 70 AD, before the exile. So before the exile, but after the resurrection, you understand what I'm saying here? After the uh, resurrection, in that like 30, 40 year period, the land was still very important to them. It wasn't like, well, now Yeshua has replaced the land and it really doesn't matter anymore. No. The land very, very much is in play. And then what's going to happen? We know what happens. There is this huge, long exile. But the land is still very important to God and to all of us. And what does Yeshua say? Yeshua says himself that he's going to gather in the elect from the four corners of the earth back to the land, back to the land. He's, he's talking there about the land of Israel, okay? And uh, it's so important that you read all the way to the book of Revelation, right? That people, as our scholar is going to tell us about. From every tribe, tongue, and nation, people are going to return. They're going to return, and, they're going to, and what do we read in Isaiah? They're going to return to Jerusalem. And the, and the king is going to be sitting on his throne in Jerusalem in a real place, Right and teach people the uh, the law, teach people the, the 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 Torah, and so clearly, even in the in the new covenant, this is what Eric is talking about, by the way, in his uh, course about the importance of the land still since the coming of the Messiah, and of course, we know that the day is coming when the Lord will return and all of those promises will unfold, but just like. We say we're living in this in-between period that scholars call the prolepsis, right? This in-between period where we know the Lord, but we still struggle, right? So God has begun the process of returning the Jewish people back to the land, yet it's not over yet. And so uh, Israel is always in this tenuous position of, of uh, having been returned, but yet not in belief, in, in unbelief. Uh, you know, and, uh, and we even read that in Ezekiel chapter 36, that Israel, that God would bring them from the four corners of the earth, and then he would sprinkle clean water on them after he brings uh, back the people. So it's a very interesting place. So we rejoice in Yom Ha'atzma'ut. We rejoice in Israel's Independence Day, seeing how God has begun this process of returning the people. We mourn on Yom HaShoah, uh, as we're still in exile and experiencing what happens in exile. But we rejoice because God is in this process of returning the people. When you read in Ezekiel chapter 37 about the dry bones, the text says the bones are shaking and the bones are rattling. 
There's this process of the bones coming together, shaking, rattling, coming together, and then it's a dead body. And then God breathes life into it. Today, we're still in the exile, but God has begun uh, this return. What's very interesting is, so this kingdom today, this issue of the kingdom today, the invisible kingdom today, you know? So the point is, is that the land that, that Yeshua is the king, even though the physical, the complete physical kingdom is not there, right? He is the king of Israel. The majority of Jewish people around the world are in rebellion of the king, of their king, the king of Israel. All the more reason for us to share this message with our people. But you know what's very interesting is that uh, in a book called Aspects of Rabbinic Theology by Solomon Schechter, he talks in this book about the kingdom of God invisible. The kingdom of God invisible is the yoke of the kingdom that Jewish people take upon themselves when we say the Shema and we mean it when we say it, basically. That's what he calls in this, uh, uh, in this book, and not just in this book, in Jewish theology, the, in, the invisible kingdom. And God, God is our king, right? And we're the visible kingdom. Then he talks about the visible kingdom, the national aspect of it and the universal aspect of it. And you can just guess uh, what he's talking about there. That God being the king of Israel over the Jewish people and God being the king over the whole earth. Well, this is not very different from the way Yeshua describes the kingdom of God. Except that he is indeed the one who brings it to pass. And the good news is that we experience it now in him. But indeed, the land, the, the, the posterity and the uh, place is indeed absolutely necessary for the blessing of the nations, right? And so we do have a conundrum today. When you have, just like we do, we have, you know, issues in this world that, that, uh, that we have to make uh, decisions about ethical and moral issues that face us as believers, right? Because we're living in this, we're lights in the midst of a dark world. So I wanted to read, I'm just going to say that, I'm just going to read it and you can think about it. And then I'll pray we'll be done. In this book, which I encourage you to read, the New Christian Zionism, Fresh Perspectives on Israel and the Land. Very good. Some of our uh, friends have written articles in it, essays in it, like Joel Willits and David Rudolph and Mark Kinzer and others, who, are, who talk all about this Zionism in the Gospel of Matthew, Zionism in Luke and Acts and, and elsewhere. But anyway, at the beginning of our good friend Joel Willits' um, essay, he has a statement by a Jewish scholar by the name of Michael Wishigrad, who, by the way, just he is one of those people like Abraham, Joshua Heschel, you ought to, you ought to be familiar with and read. It's unbelievable what, what he talks about. Okay, so I'm just going to read. Michael Wishigrad is, Wishigrad is a Jewish thinker. He's no longer living, um, but he thought a lot about uh, not only the Jewish world, but about the Messiah and Yeshua and so on. Anyway, he says this. In our time, the people of Israel has returned to its land. Was it justified in doing so? Does this return signal the beginning of the redemption? These are difficult questions to answer and will ultimately be answered by history. But whatever the answer is to these questions might be, they concern only the issue of whether we should, be, we should have waited longer. But that sometime Israel will return to the land, 
which it has been promised by God cannot be in question because God has so promised. The people who have come to dwell in the land during the estrangement of Israel from its land have been drawn into the vortex of a theological drama not of their making. Their pain must be felt by Israel, and the compassion that is the deepest dimension of the Jewish consciousness must be brought to bear on the problem. But none of this can obscure the eternal link between Israel and the land, a link that must sooner or later be reestablished. I think that's a very, that's a great quote. You know, in other words, what he's saying is, yes, God made this promise of Israel to the land, but what's hap- it's taking place in real history with real people living there, and so it raises all kinds of ethical and moral concerns, which it should. Uh, and, uh, and so we need to always be praying for the peace of Jerusalem, and we need to be praying that the Messiah would indeed uh, you know, uh, return. And in the meantime, we need to be living and, and believing that Torah way of life, of ethics and morals uh, in Israel and around the world. Uh, and, uh, and so uh, uh, in these uh, days, in between the uh, resurrection and the return of Yeshua, uh, God is at work in Messiah Yeshua in all that happens. Uh, and certainly these last couple of weeks just epitomize all of that. But let us uh, be sure and recognize that when we think about Israel's Independence Day, it is really a celebration of Israel's existence in the land to this day. And uh, we need to continue to pray, pray for the peace of Jerusalem, uh, which means the peace of Jerusalem means the welfare of all. And uh, that is indeed our desire. Let's pray. Lord, uh, thank you, God, for um, these thoughts Lord, that come from your word. Thank you, Lord, that uh, certainly uh, before the, uh, the uh, destruction of the temple, the land and the temple were very, very important, uh, even to those who were, who were uh, you know, preaching the good news. And so, Lord, now that we're in exile, we still look forward to that day of, of a complete redemption of the land, Lord. Uh, and we thank you, God, that you've begun that process. May we indeed be supportive of it, and Lord, may we be uh, supportive of bringing the good news uh, to, uh, to Jewish people everywhere, and in the Middle East, Lord, in Israel, God, we pray uh, that your word would go forth to the Israelis, the Palestinians, the Israeli Arabs, and, and all the peoples uh, involved in all of, the, all of the issues having to do with uh, the land, and we pray in Yeshua's name.